On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to Dave Kersner. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this special episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we welcome friend of the Palaver Dave Kersner to talk about Pink Floyd's Lessons Learned. All right. Gentlemen, welcome to the Palaver. Dave, welcome back to the Palaver. I've been itching to have you on here for quite some time. But uh, I guess first things first, you know, got to congratulate you on uh, on the cute mascot. Uh, Chewie's uh, lighting up the internet, man. That guy, that cat is adorable. Oh, thanks. Yeah, he's uh, he's sitting right next to me right now. I don't think he's, um, you know, uh, he realizes his fame. But, um, you know, he has his own Instagram page uh, now, uh, Chewie the Prog Cat. And uh, he's a kitten that I got during the this uh pandemic you know he was born just uh three months ago a little less and um i don't know it's it's a really good company and strangely enough he really does like progressive rock music so oh really yeah he he loves he loves to hang around my studio and just chill and listen you know (laughs) he's a good good kitty well, while we're on the uh, social part of this, Dave, thanks for lighting up the internet with quarantine cooking ideas. Uh, a lot of folks who normally wouldn't have something to say suddenly have a lot to say. Yeah, well, that was really just like uh, another excuse to post a lot of ideas and share ideas with other people, uh, which seemed to be particularly useful now that everyone's um, home more than ever. Uh, and it's a good time to just you know, think about keeping it interesting and, and or, he- or healthy or whatever it is. So, yeah, I just uh, on a whim just uh, created that group on Facebook. And and I, I have to say, I mean, I just I don't know. It took off and people really enjoying it. And I've been enjoying it. I definitely learned stuff. And I've, I, I share anytime I do something interesting in the kitchen, I share it there. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you like it. A lot of people I'm you know, it was a fun thing. And, and, and it just seemed I've always wanted to do a cooking thing. But, you know, it's a hobby. It's not I'm not like a chef or anything. But that's the fun of it is everyone. There's some chefs on there. There's amateur chefs. You know, there's people posting their the pizza they ordered, you know, whatever. It's just this idea of like, what do you do when you're stuck at home and you've got you're either on your own like I am or you've got a family or whatever. It's like, well, there's tons of ideas and a lot of friendly, cool people there sharing so yeah thank you yeah you had me at bronzino it was awesome <laughs> yeah that was a good one man i was just shopping and i saw it i saw it at whole foods and i just looked at it i'm like you know what i think it's time I, I make one of these uh it's a whole fish you know in the oven and it was great yeah right on what Perfect. what is, what is the name of the group because i'm i'm I feel like such an outsider right now. <laughs> oh, oh, I thought I was thinking that when you say group, I think of rock group. Like the group today is Branzino. Oh, no, no, no. The Facebook group, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, no, it's uh, called Quarantine Cooking Ideas. And it's totally open to everybody. You know, it's not like an elitist thing. And, uh, you know, one of the cool things about it is no one gets political. Uh, even the whole sort of... Um, let's say vegans and omnivores 
like my, I'm an omnivore myself, but I totally respect vegetarians and vegans. And we coexist on there happily where people don't try to, um, you know, force their philosophy on the other at the same time. They're perfectly free to share that. I love when uh, vegetarians and vegans share ideas. I think if you're an omnivore, you could also consider eating vegetarian or vegan meals. Why not? Um, and, you know, for you know vegans, I, I would imagine, and vegetarians, it's a little harder seeing a branzino or a steak or whatever, you know, and it may not be for them. But if they can handle it, you know, then sometimes there's ideas where you could substitute the meat for you know, other things. And I don't know, it's, it's a really good vibe in there for, for a change, because as you know, on the internet and social media, sometimes it can get a little bit toxic and, um, you know, argumentative and, and just not fun. And so it's sort of like a little safe haven of like, look, we're just, we all, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, what your beliefs are, what you're, you know, who you're going to vote for. Uh, you like food? You have to eat, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> even, you know, even music, as you guys know, you know, people oh, yeah. argue about, well, it's not Floyd without Roger Waters and it's not this, and you know, it's not yes without John Anderson. And it's like you can't even sometimes have just a nice, peaceful conversation about music sometimes. Uh, you know, but with food, you know, there is, probably is, I guess there are people who argue over meat versus not meat and things like that. But we just don't, we, we just kind of chill in there and live and let live, you know? Cool. Well, I'm I'm in. I'm on the group. I'm excited now. Um, <laughs> I, I, I need I am to, running, I'm running out of ideas. Yeah, I need, Dude, I need check to check out uh, the Branzino. Branzino. <laughs> you go to Whole Foods; they have them there. And uh, you know, you just put some olive oil on it, and some Greek uh, spices, some oregano, Italian spices, whatever, garlic, lemon. <clears throat> Seriously good if you like fish. Nice. All right. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So as much fun as that was, uh, we did we did invite you here, Dave, to actually talk, you know, about Pink Floyd. And it, at this uh -huh. point, while we have not um, released all the episodes yet, we have actually uh -huh. recorded episodes on every album in the Pink Floyd catalog. And so Great. at Some, this sometimes, point, sometimes more than one for yes. every album. <laughs> sometimes more than one. So so at this point, Dave, you know, I we're we're just going to open up the floor to you and. I would love to hear, you know, what what does what does Dave Kirshner think about the music of Pink Floyd? You know, are there are there, you know, albums or sections of the catalog that really speak to you? Are there parts that don't? You know, what's your view of the magic of Sid Barrett? And uh, just whatever whatever thoughts pop into your head, we we'd love to hear. Okay, I love Pink Floyd. You know, there are qualities to pink floyd music that i really like and are influential to me as a musician going back to the early years with sid all the way to the later years without waters with just the gilmore led pink floyd their popular peak which would be i guess dark side of the moon to the wall is still also my favorite uh, i'm not somebody who like likes to be esoteric and say oh my favorite is obscured by clouds because you know, <laughs> that's fernando <laughs> fernando's favorite is probably that no um you know I, I i'm more like look it good is good you know the thing that really blows me away by pink floyd is the songwriting and the lyric writing of roger waters on dark side of the moon and wish you were here especially those are some of the best lyrics in 
rock music, in my opinion. You know, you reached for the secret too soon. I mean, that that's one of my favorite lines. That that uh. you could talk about that for an hour. Songs like "Wish You Were Here," which we covered on the Black uh, Floyd album with the McBroom Sisters, the back vocals of Pink Floyd, which we could talk about at some point, but um, which just got released. And uh, you know, it, "Dark Side of the Moon" is a perfect album, and "Wish You Were Here." It's a little stretched, but I like it. It's cool. I mean, the whole sort of shine on your crazy diamond part is a little stretched. They got a little, you know, after Dark Side of the Moon. That's, I think Dark Side of the Moon was their peak. And then they got so popular after that, they were sort of like struggling with like, well, we'll do what we want, but we'll, we'll kind of, you know, go along with it a little bit. Um, you know, the irony is that Have a Cigar is about that exact sort of thing, dealing with the success of Dark Side of the Moon, I guess, and what was expected of them and but anyway, th- that's their, their sort of uh, you know, strongest material to me. But I really love metal. I don't think the lyric writing is as strong, but the music is really cool. Echoes is awesome, you know, one of these days. Uh, you know, I love all of it. Pillow of Winds and um, you know, Fearless, which I'm also covering. I'm doing a cover of Fearless with Randy McStein, actually, on this other Pink Floyd tribute that, I'm, that I've been working on. You know, I do like Obscure by Clouds. I, I think Richard Wright, I, I love all of them. Um, you know, I don't love Roger's politics. I got to be honest with you, and I, I, I don't like how close he gets to looking like a racist. You know, and and whether he is or he isn't, I don't know. I can't say, but or anti-Semitic. I just, it's like, oh man, you know, what a bummer because he, he's just such a genius or was or whatever. And you know, anytime he just sort of gets into that stuff, it starts to get a little bit like pushing his own agenda versus, let's say a global universal agenda, which is peace and, you know, live and let live for all. You know, like he's really anti-Israel. And I think like taking a side in that whole thing is like, you know what, why, why, you know, like why not just hope that they can work it out and be peaceful and all that kind of stuff, you know, I don't know. Things like that bother me, but, but let's say putting that aside because it's like the music is the music and the art is the art. And the people are the people. And you don't always have to, like, you know, ruin the music and the art because of the people to a certain extent. Uh, but you know who I think is underrated? It's two people underrated in Pink Floyd are Richard Wright and Nick Mason. Um, Nick is, first of all, awesome. The nicest of all of them. He's so friendly. I got to work with him. Uh, we did a sample session together. And But his feel, you know, he's not a flashy drummer, but like that, his style of playing is so crucial to Pink Floyd. And even though uh, Roger Waters and, and uh, you know, Gilmore have worked with other drummers, uh, it never sounds as good as when Nick plays, in my opinion, those yeah. songs, you know, doesn't matter. I mean, Graham Broad's a great drummer and the new guy, you know, those are, those are all great, but, uh, you know. For Pink Floyd music, it doesn't get any better than Nick Mason. And Richard Wright, man, that guy, uh, underrated. He's a great keyboard player, just really cool kind of vibe, you know, atmospheric and melodic and uh, and a cool voice, underused. You know, like they, he yeah. sounds great on Dark Side of the Moon. And then after Dark Side of the Moon, they barely used him. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I was like, dude, yeah. what, you, you know, what a cool band. It, it, they showed that they could have been if they could work together. Uh, but their success, I guess, uh, was their undoing. Was their undoing? Very Star Wars thing to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the dark side. But um, yeah, yeah, how about so- Richard's chord vocabulary, man? He was just an encyclopedia for those guys. 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, not really relatively relative to like people like Tony Banks or whoever, but relative to them, yes. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. He brought in the musicality. He Gilmore and Wright really gave it that sort of like, you know, finesse. And of course, Gilmore, oh man. I, I, I love Dave Gilmore. Like this guy, he's just uh first of all, like his guitar solo is just so melodic and tasty. And the one of the things I was trying to explain to some of my guitar friends is that part of his brilliance was also his use of space, like space in between the notes. And even like note offs, like he would go, doo, doo, chick. you know, he put the little chick in there. And it's like, oh man, like that's just funky or that's, you know, like the space and, and each phrase would be speaking almost, you know, whereas I know a lot of great guitar players, but uh, guitar players tend to kind of like fill all the spaces with notes. So they just kind of like, and it might be melodic and it might be really good, but it takes a certain, I don't know, or or brilliance to know when not to play, even if we're talking about a split second, but just to let a phrase be a phrase. And, you know, guitar solos such as, uh, you know, Comfortably Numb and uh, Another Brick in the Wall, now, these are some of the best guitar solos of all time, in my opinion. You know, and it's partially because of that, because they're these melodic. You could sing the guitar solo along yeah. with them. You know, you yeah. can digest it in phrases. So I like that. And then I love his voice. His voice is my voice is very similar to his. So I've kind of like uh, adopted a, you know, almost like you know, if if he was my dad, like uh, Phil Collins is Simon's dad. <laughs> <laughs> I have it. You know, it's sort of like I'm a, a disciple of that style, if you will, you know, in a, in a way it's just kind of like, well, I, I I don't know, I identify with it and I make it my own, but it's just something I can do. It's something my voice is good for. And actually, I was told this. I didn't even know, but I, I was playing with other musicians. Like, you know, you sound like Gilmore. I'm like, I do? I'm like, well, that's awesome. I was always looking for a singer who kind of sounds like Gilmore. Like, And <laughs> I just kind of connected with it because I... Uh, I really love that music and, and, and it resonates with me. Like it just comes very natural to me uh, to sing that way. But now going back to Sid Barrett era and just early Pink Floyd, you know, I like the experiment, the experimental aspect. I like the psychedelic stuff, um, you know, those old Benson Echo Rex and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's, uh, and, and, 60s Beatlesy, you know, they're real Beatlesy. Arnold Lane's super Beatlesy, and oh yeah, uh, you know. And but I like that. Um, and you know, it's not my favorite stuff, but I, I went to see um, Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets with Guy Pratt and everybody. Nice. I thought it was great. It was so much fun, and it was a really nice celebration of the the early stuff. And uh, you know, so I enjoyed Fat Old Son, uh, If and and uh, Adam Hart Mother, Set the Controls. You know, I, I, I do enjoy all that stuff uh, to a certain, not all, but, you know, a lot of it is um, is fun. But to me, it's also kind of like the early amorphous formings of a solid compositional team, you know, or a compositional slash team, because it's not always, you know, they're not always credited with the songwriting, but... It's the sound of the chemistry of, of the four of them that culminated on Dark Side of the Moon. And everything before, it just seems like they're, they're learning and experimenting and finding their ultimate sort of uh, sound. But that said, 
you'd think by the time they got to Dark Side of the Moon that that would be like, ah, okay, this is our sound. But then they kept changing because by the time they get to animals, <laughs> it's completely different. Yeah. And then the wall is like this whole theatrical thing, which is brilliant in and of itself. It's unbelievable. And then the final cut's kind of like a Roger Waters album, like a wall leftovers, it sounds like. But still good because I love the wall. Dave, um, when, when did you go full Pink Floyd in your catalog? I, I'm, I'm thinking in static. You got to express those, those sounds and those voices more than anywhere else in your uh I don't know. I mean, no, I don't think unless I'm doing I've got two modes of thinking. Either I'm doing a solo record or a band project that's supposed to be original and not a tribute per se, or I'm doing straight up a tribute. Right. Like right. with Sonic Elements. Yeah. So when I'm doing a tribute, I'm definitely thinking like along those lines, like, okay, uh, let's pay tributes, like specifically, let's get right on it. Whereas if it's my original music, static, for instance. I'm actually not thinking, okay, I'm going to go Floydy here, or I want to do something like this. I never think that. I think that would almost kind of ruin it, maybe make it more contrived or second rate or, or whatever. It's more like a part of my DNA of influences, not just Pink Floyd, but like Genesis and Yes and King Crimson and the Beatles. And, you know, it's just sort of there. It's part of my vocabulary of chord changes or styles of singing or playing or drumming or whatever it is. And the, the most important thing to me is the song. So the song comes from some kind of spark of inspiration, not out of copying, but out of like a genuine, I don't know, just I'm playing the piano or a guitar and something kind of comes to me and I'm like, oh, that, that makes me think of this emotionally or, or, yeah. or, you know, whatever, like a soundtrack to a particular subject matter or concept. <clears throat> and then as I'm building it, just like when I cook, you know, I'm like, oh, this flavor would be good in there, and this would be nice. Oh, and since it's like this, it is kind of Floydy, and maybe it would make sense to do blah, blah, blah. Now, that said, on the album Static is this, the title track, Static, <clears throat> which does have Nick Mason on drums. Um, and this happened because I did this product with my company, Sonic Reality, called Nick Mason Drums, and I recorded Nick Mason with Alan Parsons, which is a total amazing fluke that it was able to happen but i did some work with alan and then you know through guy pratt we connected the, dot, the dots and just managed to record uh nick mason's drum playing and the sound of his kit so that musicians can actually buy this as a product and use it in their own music uh, nick's really cool with that neil, neil peart was cool with that billy cobb and terry bozzi i've recorded a lot of drummers Dave, real quick, let me ask you about that, because when we were doing our you know, podcasts through the, the years here and uh, you know, we were, I was doing research, I, I was looking at all these YouTube videos and I stumbled upon a video of, uh, of Alan Parsons and, and Nick Mason being interviewed. And it was on YouTube and they were like they were just the conversation was incredible. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, the guy asking these questions is just doing a great job this is awesome and then the camera pans and it was you <laughs> well, what, i so know like, that guy right and 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 sometimes i i sometimes i have trouble containing myself even here like um like what was that like talking with those guys and how the hell like you've worked with these legends like how do you how do you separate like the 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 fan and admiration of 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 what they've done to to what you're focused on 
Well, there's a lot there. Like, how did it even happen is one thing. And then how do you do that? I mean, as far as the last thing you just said, you got to remember that we're all just people. And um, as much as you, you've got to balance this sort of reality, that reality with your admiration. So on the one hand, yes, they're legends. On the other hand, you know, you don't want them to be uncomfortable with you just treating them like they're on a pedestal and, and, and you're not right. worthy and all that kind of stuff. So um, I've worked with enough professional top you know, musicians to not lose it, even if I'm a huge fan and, and not get nervous or, or act weird. Uh, plus, you know, I was there in a professional capacity as well. So yeah. that would be really appropriate. Although I must say uh, there was a moment I kept it to myself, but I like telling the story where so we were recording uh, we were sampling it's called sampling uh nick mason and so he's in the live room and I'll, if you want to, i'll tell you how alan parsons got involved but uh, but alan was engineering who hasn't engineered him since dark side of the moon since uh. you know the 70s hasn't done it since then so i was able to witness this and be part of it and i was producing i wasn't just interviewing them i was producing mm-hmm. the session mm-hmm. and there was this moment and paying for it which that's also what that means uh and uh <laughs> the fun part um and uh but no it was totally worth it and i i was very lucky and honored to be there but the, there was this one moment this fan moment inside where i almost exploded where nick was like is that okay dave you know and then alan <laughs> alan turns to me he's like dave is that okay what do you think and i'm like <laughs> i can't believe nick mason and alan parsons are asking my opinion this is like you know, I'm going to wake up. It's like a Fletch dream where, like, you play basketball <laughs> with the Lakers. You know, like, is this actually happening? They're asking my opinion. Can I Can I tell a friend? Uh, and I was like, I just responded, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, you guys are doing great. Yeah, thank you very much. No, uh, I think you need to do uh, that one again. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm not like that, though. You know, like, somebody, I, I've worked with people who are like, you know, they would say something just to say something. No, I was like, yeah, this is going great. And I had them do all sorts of fun stuff, too, like um, playing drums to – animals because he was just playing i had him play to the albums so we could just get the grooves from the albums and he hadn't played animals since since he played animals since wow. they toured animals and he was loving it nick mason's so cool he was like just laughing smiling enjoying it um and of course alan had worked with them since then as well so everyone just we had a great time and of course no one had a better time than i did just being able to talk to those guys and, and as far as the interview goes I mean, yeah, you know, look, you guys are great interviewers, too. So, I mean, it's if any of us who really care um, got the chance to ask all the questions. We, I'm sure there's more questions that I didn't even think of. But, you know, cool questions that true fans want to know. And uh, versus, let's say, some journalist who's assigned to it and maybe doesn't even really like Pink Floyd or no, you know, and yeah, just asking yeah. road questions, right? So this was like, you know, a lot of times these situations that i've been able to share either interviews or behind the scenes or me doing that tour there's a video of me touring you through genesis studio yeah you know their own studio yeah which no one does because no one bothered you know to to you know but they didn't mind and it's just kind of like well hey this is genesis studio check it out this is where they make those albums and i shared it on youtube and it's kind of like i don't know i like to come across as being which is what i genuinely am which is a fellow, just like Fernando as well, like the two of us, we're like fellow fans. We're musicians ourselves in our own right. We like to be respected as such, and, and we've earned it. But at the same time, there's no pretentious, you know, like elitist thing here. It's kind of like, hey, guys, you know, we all love Genesis, right? In fact, we're doing a Genesis tribute album uh, now and a Pink Floyd one as well, or Pink Floyd or whatever it is. And it's like, 
I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing this for fellow fans who might want to know what it's like, what this person is really like, or, you know, whatever info I can get, you know, to share or, or even the sound of their instrument. That's a really cool, or they're playing, you know, and that, that's the thing, by the way, what I was going to say earlier is that I wrote the song static, which is, which is the title album of static, but just playing along, writing my own thing to the drums from us and them. If you listen to it, and you, you actually, it's the drums from Us, us and Them uh, <laughs> nice. under the song. And I re-edited it and, and you know, moved things around to my taste. But uh, that's how useful a drum pattern can be out of context of the song. So wow. it was inspiring to me. You know? So that's why it sounds Floyd to begin with. But you know. Exceptional. Awesome. Awesome. I'm, I'm, I mean, I love the album and I'm glad I asked. Didn't, I didn't realize the derivation of the drum part. But yeah. 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 Very good I never vibe. told it. It's a secret. <laughs> Love it. Back to Sid Barrett. I guess some of the members of the Palaver took a little bit of objection to the fact that how often Sid Barrett's name is invoked around later Pink Floyd. Um, uh, guilty. And, you know, because, you know, clearly like so far beyond, you know, his departure from the band and any possible influence um, on the, the current, you know, it always seems like people fall over themselves to, you know, to mention him or to, to you know, stake his his claim in the original original part of the band. And I guess my question for for you, Dave, is like, do you think that is number one? Do you think it's relevant? And who do you think maybe deserves it more? Someone like Sid Barrett, or say like Peter Banks from Yes, who I would say doesn't barely gets any credit um, for his influence on the band. I would say that Peter Banks is straight up just underrated. And mm. Sid Barrett is both underrated and overrated at the same time. And I'll tell you why, how. Okay, so first of all, Sid definitely was the impetus and the influence and the, the foundation of that band. It wouldn't even exist without him. Uh, and he was, you know, sort of uh, brilliant. But he reached for the secret too soon, unfortunately, and uh, he lost the plot. I, I think he's also overrated in the sense that he's, the whole thing is romanticized. It's even exploited. I mean, I don't really have a problem with it because I think it's it's kind of a cool mystique of the band. You know, this Sid character, and he went crazy, and this and that. But the reality is less sort of romantic, which is that he was around and no one really cared that much about him. You know, like he showed up and, you know, they looked crazy and he just kind of went about his business. And I don't know, like if they really, really cared, they could have had him guest on the album or do something or whatever. So in a way, there was kind of like, OK, you know, let's let's make it like he's awesome, but like let's not. They really invite him around or do anything with it. You know, that said, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I do know, uh, I and mean, it's kind of a cool, fun Sid fact, a little thing. I worked with a, uh, an engineer producer named Ken Scott, and we did. I worked on more sample libraries, so we we recreated the the drum tracks from David Bowie's Spiders from Mars band with uh, Woody Woodmansey and uh, Crime of the Century with Bob Siebenberg and Billy Cobb and Terry Bozio and Rod Morgenstein. Hmm. And he also recorded the Beatles. So we did a Beatles kit, but not with Ringo, but we did a Ringo kit and an Elton John kit as well. So he recorded all those bands and he recorded Pink Floyd as well. However, his claim to fame, this is pretty funny. He only recorded two Pink Floyd songs, but they happened to be the very last Pink Floyd song with Sid Barrett. 
and the first one with Gilmore right after Sabera left. It's on that single uh, apples or something. And so I asked him questions about like, what was it like working with Sid? You know, like what was the deal? And you know, he said he was fine. You know, he would just come in and stuff. So I mean, some of it's like a little bit exaggerated, and then some of it isn't. I don't know. He deserves credit that he gets. I think sometimes he gets sort of romanticized into this like legend, genius, this and that. I'm like, well, you know, I guess. I mean, and maybe I'm not even as much of a, a, enough of an expert on early Pink Floyd to be able to point out exactly what it was. Uh, you know, things that I really know well, like let's say the Beatles, I could tell you like this was brilliant because this started this whole genre you know helter skelter and led zeppelin you know like i don't know certain things just kind of uh you know and then led zeppelin led to the heavy metal so uh but same thing with sid i guess psychedelica like he really was a pioneer of that within the band they talk about how important he was to them uh to get it off the ground but then he wasn't important to them once he was just kind of like you know waters wanted to take over uh and i don't think really waters wanted him around so it's a it's a bit convoluted, but I hope that kind of answers your question. Nice, sort of. Yeah. As much as I know, I mean, like yeah. I said, well, it, I drew the parallel uh, between those two guys because I heard Fernando talking about Peter Banks one day on yeah. the Yes Music podcast, and I ended up I ended up with a like a list of albums that I had to go find. I still haven't even gotten through them to uh, uh-huh. find Peter uh, Peter Banks. Uh, work work and i know um fernando is a huge fan peter banks is like a, com- a completely like new venture for me so i and while we're sitting here talking i i drew the parallel between the two i don't know why no i mean because there are people part of a band at the early stages that uh you know kind of got lost uh, but not not said so much uh, because of the lore and all that but yeah, uh, but yeah. definitely peter banks I mean, you know, Steve Howe is brilliant and I love his playing, but, you know, Peter Banks established a lot of the style of his playing in Yes. And that doesn't really get mentioned. I guess he doesn't want to mention or I don't know why it doesn't get mentioned, but or people just don't know. It's kind of like the early uh, Fleetwood Mac. It's a similar kind of thing where it's like there's people that are really into those guys and there's a lot of people who have no idea because they achieved all this success uh, later on. Not to mention, you know, let's say people like Steve Hackett are also underrated uh, by Genesis fans uh, in the larger portion. I suppose, you know, the ones that know them from the trio success. Uh, and a lot of people, even Phil Collins is underrated as a drummer because so many people don't even know. You know, and yet there are the true fans who love Steve Hackett and love Phil as a drummer and, you know, all of the, Peter Green, all, all these people that were part of the beginnings of a band before they achieved mass success. So it's kind of fun, though, like, you know, you're discovering all this Peter Bank stuff and Fernando's a great resource for that as well. There are certain people I know, like Fernando, who are just like an encyclopedia of progressive rock or classic rock or whatever. And there's so many albums in the 70s and the 60s and, you know, even the 80s that uh, or even the 90s or, you know, even now that are made to discover, um, you know, and hopefully like your listeners also check out our catalogs, my catalog on Sonic Elements 
www.bandcamp.com or fernandoperdomo.bandcamp. Bandcamp's a good resource, too, for these things. Dave, Nick Mason, Ringo Starr, any, any comparisons there? Yeah, I would say the two of them are underrated drummers in terms of some people don't really understand that the greatness of their playing isn't flashiness or speed or whatever. It's their feel and their the character of their playing. It's very recognizable. You know, both of them have a little bit of a swing to their groove and they both drag a little and they're built behind the beat. And that's actually a cool thing. It's 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 hard to do. <laughs> it's it's strangely enough, if you're a really great drummer, it's hard to be able to drift like that and swing like that because you 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 want you think, oh, I spent all this time to be super, super accurate. And sometimes that's good, but you don't want dead accuracy for this these the, the Beatles or Pink Floyd. In fact, I had a situation, I won't say who the people were, but uh, because I worked with a lot of different amazing drummers. One drummer who's really fantastic, um, I wanted to do like a Beatlesy thing. And I was like, oh, wow, like this is too good. It's too good. It doesn't have that feel. It needs to just loosen <laughs> up, man. Swing goes, you know, it needs to go like, you know, you need to do that. You can't just go, you know, like perfect Neil Peart type drumming or something. Yeah. It doesn't work. So I, it was a good lesson for me to be like, you know, there are strengths to each musician and each drummer. Uh, and same thing, like, let's say with, with guitar, uh, Fernando openly admits he's not a shredder. You know, like if I want oh, shredding, right. I'll go to Randy McStein or Francis Dunnery. You know, Steve and they can, they, yeah, Steve Hackett. You know, those guys can really freaking do, they, they're good at doing both melodic and uh, fast playing and stuff. But Fernando is just Fernando. What Fernando gives you is his soul, his inspiration, mm-hmm. his um, in the zone melodic magic. Um, and it doesn't have to have flashiness. It just has to be memorable and, and emotional, have an emotional impact. And that's what those guys do. I, those, I would say, I love drummers, you know, that Ringo and, and, and Nick Mason are in my top drummers list, top 20 drummers, you know, yeah, that, sure. so I have to, I have to say this. Um, so I think my, I think my favorite track of, of yours, Dave, <laughs> is, is the lie. Oh, okay. Um, off of New World, and the solo section is is nothing short of epic. And I, I think that's Fernando playing on that. On yes, that. yeah. Uh, and you know, you talk about you mentioned space earlier, but but there is like he just plays some some melodies in that and some phrases, mm-hmm. and then you come in with those giant keyboards. It it really it's. I I think when I first got that, that was sort of the um the song that just kind of like mm-hmm. smacked me in the head and was like, oh yeah. Um, so I, I have to say that, but when, when that we is- went, when we went through the Pink Floyd catalog, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned uh, Nick Mason, Richard Wright being underrated. Like that was, I think we sort of discovered that as we went through album by album. And mm-hmm. for me, that discovery about Nick Mason was, was unbelievable. Like I remember talking about great gig in the sky and like all these years of listening to that song, I'd never really ever paid attention to like what he was doing mm-hmm. behind all those, all that, that vocal. And he blew me away. And it was, it, that was probably the big reward for me going through the whole catalog, this go around when we did that. 
It's cool. Interesting. Well, by the way, getting back to what you said about the lie. Yeah. Um, that song, the solo was co-written. And, um, you know, if I could speak candidly about it, cause I love Fernando and, you know, this, I work with him so much that there are times where he'll just do a solo, like the song, nothing. He did that solo undirected complete. I didn't even ask him to do a song. Actually, he created that section wow. uh, and it was brilliant. Uh, but with the lie was a case actually where he was in my studio and I, I, my general approach when I write a song and if I'm producing, so I'm directing the session is I let the guitar player have a crack at it themselves for a while before I step in and make suggestions too much nice. or really start to like sing notes <laughs> and things. Cause you know, you, you never know. Like sometimes they're going to do something better than you That's can right. think of. Like in, in nothing, the song, nothing it's better than I would have ever imagined or asked them to do. Mm. Uh, but with the lie, it was noodly actually i should find the original solos i wasn't happy with it and because i really had high, high expectations I, I liked the song i felt it was strong and that was a fun section and so that all those lines like da 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 i wrote those nice so okay and so it, and it was more like phrases because i'm a big believer in speaking with the instrument and i wish i could play if i could actually play lead guitar i'd probably be pretty good but unfortunately i have just don't have that skill <laughs> uh but i have it in my head to write it i just you know, i just can't play but i, I love david gilmore for instance guitar playing and steve howe yeah. and those guys are brilliant at that stuff but especially gilmore like i said he speaks those phrases so i and that's what i was trying to get him to do it was all good but it's, when i say noodly i just mean like you know no space just blowing through the thing yeah and i want and i was like well so what we did is we kept some of the stuff he was doing that he liked and then i added in like these sort of like take it a step up with a melodic line maybe the line relates to the vocal yeah. melodies. i write all the lyrics and the vocals for my stuff and you know she quotes that and just interrelates so anyway that's how that was created it's one of his favorite solos too and it was a good example of like, you know, <clears throat> most guitar players I know and I've worked with don't like it when the keyboard player slash songwriter meddles with their guitar solo. It's kind of like, would you like it if I wrote your keyboard solo? <laughs> and I'm like, actually, I, I would not mind. I really wouldn't mind if they had a good idea, but it generally yeah. doesn't happen. So I don't blame them. But this was a great example of like, yeah, but, you know, whatever. The most important thing is getting that final result so the song is great and, and listen he gets all the credit <clears throat> i never get to say this you know i mean unless it's an interview or something but people listen to it and they go oh my god this is like a great solo and he even says it's one of his best solos and it's like well you know that just goes to show that sometimes it's good to to you know not have an ego about it which he does and he's great about yeah. it and just allow collaboration to create you know the i, cause I think for the fifth was co-written with tony as well and you know it's you know it's got some yeah. of the it's great. like it's, so it's it's got a nice i think that's a great example too of a solo that people love uh from genesis that really has a bit of hackett and tony together to create a thing um and you know if you think about it if you look at it like an orchestra it's like this is just another instrument uh in the orchestra you know so who's composing and you know so i mean but i, I don't i'm not a control freak i don't write everyone's solo or anything 
and I don't want to. I, I like to hear that blend of like their ideas and or completely their ideas if if it's not needed. But if I hear it, I go for it. But yeah, getting back to Richard Wright, yeah, he, you know, he's and, and Nick Mason, those two guys, it's all of them. And that's the yeah. thing to these bands where there's um, <clears throat> either outside influences or their own sort of uh, egos or whatever perception where they think I'm the band. Which one's pink? It's me. And it's like, no, man, it's not you. I mean, yes, <laughs> it's important that you wrote the lyrics, Roger, and all that. But it's everybody, including Rick, including Nick, because, you know, anything else it's it's different you can still call it pink floyd but it's not the same magic and chemistry as those four guys and the same thing with like led zeppelin you know some people are like oh jimmy is led zeppelin like no he's not he's part of john paul jones and come on you know bonzo i mean the, and robert plant that's led zeppelin and um you know so but that said i i don't mind when bands have new members i i like all the members of yes and I support them. However, and I work with them too. So I work with the guys from Yes a lot. Uh, John Davison, Billy Sherwood, and Jay Sean. You know, oh, and, man, we'll get there. You know, but the thing is, is that doesn't matter who you are, you do still have to write great songs and reach for the magic. Yeah. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. These bands. So you know, to me, it's like all right, you know, like the new Roger Waters album. Actually, I like it. It's pretty good. It's one of his better ones. Um, and, you know, it could be better, but it, it's, I enjoy I bought it. I don't regret buying it. I actually didn't buy Rattle That Lock from Gilmore. I wanted to. I like On an Island a lot. Mm. And I don't like Rattle That Lock. I just didn't, you know, I probably might break down and get it. But it's just when I heard it, I was like, no, man, this doesn't grab me like On an Island did. You mm. know, so you, I don't, it doesn't matter how great you were. You still have to do you still have to bring it, you know, and that's how I feel about my own music, too. We're building up a lot of momentum to get into the Black Floyd album. But if you guys have any <laughs> questions before that, because because all this keyboard stuff translates yeah, into no, that. I, and I, I, I thought that's exactly where we were going. But yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Paul, I should um, mention the Progressive Ears interview with Fernando, because yeah. if Fernando schooled you on Peter Banks, <laughs> Oh my! He went down the uh, Todd Rundgren, Tokyo oh, oh, really? rabbit hole on the that show. The two of them Sean. together was an encyclopedia of musical knowledge, like the back and forth. The two of them know so much, uh, so many obscure records and this and that. That like literally, you should just take out a pad of paper and just write down everything they say because it's like you know a wealth yep. of knowledge. Exactly. That, that that was a good explosion for me a couple weekends ago. And then uh, at, following that, uh, Billy Sherwood was on. Good segue to Black Floyd with Billy Sherwood there, there because he is kicking fucking ass when he's... He, what is he doing there on that acoustic guitar? He's playing Pulls Apart. Oh, yeah. He did a nice job on that. Mm. Wow. Oh, my I, God. I, I work with Billy. You know, he, he sometimes hires me for his tributes. I played on his uh, Super Tramp. Uh, one with uh, Joel and Turner that was fun we did bloody well right and um, but I hire him on mine because he's just so useful and handy like he's a good utility person um, and you know you never know like some of the stuff is placeholders you know he'll do something and it's like okay he played drums on it but it's probably going to be replayed by so and so and then there'll be a part like that you know usually the bass will keep and, and then sometimes the guitars but that one 
was he played bass and guitar on that song. Because uh, we had other guitar players too. We had uh, Dave Fowler who mixed the whole thing. Right, from, right. Billy Pink Floyd, and uh, you know Fernando and Randy as well on the album. So, uh, but uh, yeah, he did a beautiful job on those acoustic guitars for Pulls Apart for the Black Floyd album. And that is just a good song. You guys kind of nailed it with song selection. And and you're composing here. I mean, Durga is composing along with, is it David is a co-writer? Oh, oh Guy Pratt is a co-writer. Yep. And John Karen as well. That is just that is just fantastic. And have you ever sat down with John Karen? Because, you know, he talks about working with um, Richard and, you know, setting up Richard's sounds and whatnot. Um, it seems like you guys come from that same school of, of, you know, your own instrument, but you, you're also going to know every instrument in the band if you have to. I, I look up to John quite a bit. I admire him. I think he's super talented and, um, you know, and I've had some conversations. I've never met him in person, uh, but I've, I've, I've talked to him, you know, through emails and maybe on the phone, but, um, but he's, he's very nice. Uh, but you know, he's just fucking great you know and can i can i say can i say that word I'm absolutely yeah. <laughs> and you know he's the only guy who played with both of them i think with both the gilmore led pink floyd and roger waters he's too valuable he's a star wars reference he's too valuable to be kept alive you know? exactly um, exactly <laughs> he's too dangerous to be kept alive um that's, he is that's a, he, a superpower of the keyboardist kind of working their way into every little technical part of the band <laughs> Well, no, and it's not just that, actually. Um, he's a great guitar player and a great singer. When he yes. sang Dogs with Roger Waters, I was yep. blown away. I was like, well, why don't they have him sing more? He's kind of underrated like Richard Wright. Like, they should have had Richard mm. sing more. They should have John Karen sing more. The other thing I don't understand about John, I really don't. I mean, except for the fact that he's a working musician and he gets top gigs. But, like, how does he not have solo albums? I, I just don't understand. I mean, maybe he's just not a writer, but he is kind of a writer for Pink Floyd. I don't know. He just doesn't have the motivation or doesn't have the time. It, hopefully, it's the time. Now, I'm going to write him and actually tell him, like, dude, if you want any help. I mean, he, you know, he wrote Learning to Fly. Cool. I know. That's a great song. So he's super talented. He's got everything all in one. You know, he can write, he can sing, he can write, he can play guitar and keys and everything else. So I don't know. He's he's sort of underknown and underrated for con considering how talented he is and all the things he's done. So, you know. But it was cool to work with him on this. Um, you know, it's through Durga, and Guy Pratt's super nice. He's such a cool guy, you know. And um, and I love what he's doing with Nick Mason and Saucer Full of Secrets. And I, you know, he was so nice about it too because I told him I saw it in L.A. And he's like, "Oh man, you know, when this whole thing's over, you know, we'll invite you to come see it. You know, come backstage and come to the show in Miami when we play there again." And I thought, you know, that's one of those silver linings, or not silver linings, but light at the end of the tunnel. You know, when you think when this whole thing is over, we're gonna really enjoy going to concerts and you know things like that. I really look forward to to seeing that again, and uh, and especially to just you know get a personal invite like that. It's really kind of fun. Mm. That's a great uh, so, perspective. Yeah, we, we, we talked to Durgan. She mentioned that Lorelai being, you know, stranded basically with David Fowler was a blessing for this album. Oh, yeah. It would not have gotten done without that. <laughs> with the two of them, especially, uh, you know, with and Fowler coming on board, um, that was clutch, um, you know. And in that case, by the way, and I've been, we've been working on it for like seven years or so, off and on, because they were so busy. And I was wow. busy, 
and you know so part of part of this whole thing was like okay it was born out of the fact that i had them singing on my pink floyd tribute and then you know someone probably one of the two of them or both of them said we'd love to do female vocals on these and then we were doing like later pink floyd songs that was their era that they sang in the band especially durga Mm -hmm. pulse you know and all that stuff um and and then they were like all right well let's make a mcbroom sisters album with some of the originals i ended up only co-writing one it's the last song on the record it's called cocoon there's like you know sections of the album where you hear like basically my my band backing everybody like you know the same dkb dave kersner band fernando Derek Sintron, um, you know, and maybe either Randy, who also plays with me, and or Billy, who sometimes plays with me on that. And uh, so it has some similarities sonically here and there to my own music, but with them singing. Uh, and then, then it's a lot of other stuff, like the other songs you mentioned, like um, the song with Guy Pratt, it's totally like a scritty politty kind of a song, or whatever. It's not all just Pink mm. Floyd style. Um, but, you know, it's their album. And in the end, I'm just one of four co-producers, including the two of them and Fowler. But really, Fowler was the MVP because he came in and was able to work directly with Lorelai. There's nothing, nothing replaces being able to work next to somebody. And they were picky. I used to joke with them, Durga and Lorelai, like, you guys are Donald Fagan and Walter Becker here. You know, it's like, <laughs> what do you think this is? We have unlimited, you know, uh, <laughs> we'll do like 20, 20 different, no, but, um, in the right, joke, right. they love steely dan too and no they were very particular about it so i felt like i didn't mix it i was originally i was going to mix it and i just couldn't because it's that kind of you know chasing a rainbow thing where it's like if i'm mixing it to my own taste and liking then no problem and even i'm hard on myself picky about it but when you're mixing to someone else and they're like well it doesn't have this and i'm looking for this and it's like Oh, man. And especially if they're not an engineer, so they don't speak the same language, like, you know, what frequencies or what, whatever. I was like, oh, man, I'm not <clears throat> I'm not patient enough to do that kind of. So I don't engineer for people that way. I just that's not a gig that I would like to do. I like to be more sort of like, you trust me? Good. Like Fernando, when I work with him, it's like, you trust me, right? He's like, yeah. All right. Good. You know, and if he feels he has to say something, he says something. Otherwise, you know, you, you work with someone because you trust them. And even when I hire an engineer, it's the same thing. I have to trust them. I have to, you know, otherwise it's a waste of time. So with, uh, with David Fowler, he has more patience and he's also just, you know, was able to just kind of please everybody. Otherwise the album, you know, sometimes albums never get done because right. everyone can't agree on, you know, how it's supposed to sound or what it's mm-hmm. supposed to, you know, the track order or whatever it is. It's not that easy when it's a committee. You know, uh, that's why I kind of like, I love bands, but I do like it when it's like a solo thing or in continuum as a band name, but it really is me directing everybody and writing the music. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and it, but it has a sort of like captain of the ship that can take it to the end. Whereas Sound of Contact had difficulty finishing the second album because we just couldn't agree, you know, and it was mm-hmm. like just limbo lingering on. And same thing with this album, it was lingering on, of course, also because we were busy. But, um, you know, there's that. But, you know, still, it's nice to be able to, like, I, I kind of shifted my role from, let's say, my role in that album was more getting it off the ground. And then uh, Fowler was the one that kind of drove it home. 
Yeah, and there's chemistry there. So, so just to be clear to our listeners who have not pulled up Wikipedia in the last hour, um, Lorelai is in the Australian Pink Floyd, also known as Aussie Floyd, with David Domine Fowler. So yeah. they go back years. So, you know, contributing to this, working on this, I'm sure they had conversations leading up to this with you. And, um, and, no, actually, and obviously, no. uh, Fowler came in at the end. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, it's something. Oh, we, oh really? Uh, MVP just kind of like came out of the dugout and uh, <laughs> literally, like, it needed, we needed him. We needed him and the the time for them to work together uh, because also, you know, they were busy. So Lorelai, I mean, Fowler would be busy, and then of course Lorelai touring with them, they she'd be busy along with them, and you know, pretty rigorous touring schedule. That they were, I mean, it's not all year round, but. You know, but we probably could have approached Fowler sooner. Um, but it just was one of those things uh, that probably should not have been uh, sort of uh, done that way. I mean, I look back on a lot of projects that I'm trying to finish, including the Pink Floyd tribute that I'm doing and other tributes and things, where it gets, there's just, like, it takes too long. You're taking too long <laughs> to do it. And, and you, you lose files and, you know, you, you have to keep track of things. In fact, I'm doing that right now with The Lamb Lights Down on Broadway. Right now, literally, like uh, before we, we talked, I, I'm looking for Francis Dunnery's vocal tracks to drag over to the session, you know, make mock-ups for him, uh, just of the past tracks we did. You know, and it's like, oh, gosh, you know, it's so much of a challenge. You know, when you're looking at files from 2011 and 12, oh, wow. and 2020, <laughs> You know, and it's like you got to reduce stuff. You got to do. Th it's like and it's a nightmare. So, um, you know, in retrospect, I wouldn't do that. I'm going to try. I'm trying to change my approach to be like, you take something on, you finish it within the year, and that's it. Don't take it on if you're not going to do that. And um, I didn't know that then. I was green, uh, like Kermit the Frog, green. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, and so we were all, and, and everyone, we were all learning as we were doing. It. We were like, uh, uh. uh what do we do? And, you know, the one thing I, I don't like to do, maybe a pet peeve of mine, is I, I my time is so precious to me that I hate spending a day on something and then not be used. And the irony is that happened several times during the making of this album uh, where, you know, let's say I played Great Gig in the Sky and, and it got replaced by all the guys in Australian Pink Floyd without me even knowing. I was like, I took all day to do that. Oh. You know, to get, that's right, because we were playing to the album, Nick Mason's tracks. And so I'm like, all right, I'll just use it on my Pink Floyd tribute, fortunately. So I did all that work for nothing. But then there was another time where I did all the keys for Gods and Lovers. And just coincidentally, and they've been asking me to do it for like, you know, months and months. It's the first song on the record. It's an original song that Durga wrote with John Karen. And then the day after, you know, in Murphy's Law, the day after I do all the keys, Durga goes, oh, John's going to do the keys. I'm like, what? Oh. I do. I just like, did that. I that day back, man. I could have worked on my album. Uh, you know. But then we right. ended up using a combination of my keys and, and John's keys. And so it's kind of fun. I got to play with John anyway on his song. So there's that fear when it's someone else's project, someone else's album that I have. I shouldn't have, I admit. But then it's like, if I work on this, I just want to know that we're being productive and that you know the time is being used and it's not going to be like, you know, tossed out because of like something it's out of my control. Um, it's, unless I'm being like paid lo lots of money or whatever, I guess uh, sometimes you can just be hired and someone wants to be picky and like, 
you know, pay you every time. You're like, okay, you're the one, man. you're the boss. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in these cases where we're all sort of partners on it, I'm kind of like, oh, gosh, this could just go on and on and on. And I'm just like to see the, the final, you know, the finish line is so rewarding for all of us. But from my perspective, I'm like, oh, wow, we did it. We got this thing. And it sounds great. And everyone's happy with it. And that's, you know, because it's also tragic when you do a record and somebody's not happy with it. You know, and you're like, because you know, I don't mind that, that, that uh, the Australian people, like guys, got to play on a great gig. It's fine. I don't have, I'm not an egotistical player where it's like, I must be on this song and that song and I must take a solo. Nah, it doesn't matter. It's just the fact that my only thing was like, I spent all day on that. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, that part, you know, is the, the only gripe I have, but it's not a big deal. Um, and, you know, even that I admit is like, oh, you know, whatever, man. You know, you know how many times people spend sometimes people make a whole record that gets shelved by a, a, a label and, you know, a whole record, you know, and all that's oh. gone. You can't do anything. So, I mean, it's nothing compared to that. So I should be thankful that I waste a few days here and there doing stuff. But, yeah, I mean, we've been working on it. And then Fowler came in to save the day. Yeah, that's how that happened. That was great. Fernando did more than guitar. He actually did the majority of the bass on this album. So he's he's flexing his lower muscles there. Well, you know, Fernando, strangely enough, he's known more known as a guitar player, but he's one of my favorite bass players. He's just so good. I've worked with some bass players that were famous. I can't I won't say who. You know, I was like, this is good. But I'm like, I couldn't convey. I had one guy like play it twice. And I'm like, I can't ask him to play the third time, but he's just not getting it. And then I went to Fernando, and I'm like, can you just do this? I need kind of like a Chris Squire-y thing here. Boom, done. Really fast and nailed it. Knew exactly what I was talking about. And so I think like speaking the language and also having a love for bass players, he's a big fan of Chris Squire, a big fan of uh, Rutherford, and a big fan of John Wetton. And those are the bass players that I like. So, you know, and plus he's fast. Fernando and Billy Sherwood, both of them, they're just so darn fast that it's I'm spoiled. I'm like kind of like if I need to get something done and they're available, they'll turn it around within a day. Mm-hmm. And you know that's rare. A lot of the musicians I work with are like, oh, I need to schedule time. I need a week or two. You know, it's like, and I'm even the same way. I'm not that fast. If someone has me play on something, you know, I take my time. But <clears throat> they're fast and generally, uh, you know, giving you gold. So, yeah, it was just there. I mean, like, I, you know, again, I was producing the record. Originally, I was just the only producer of the record. Made the biggest mistake was not just A to Zing the thing while we had the time and taking it for granted. I mean, come on. You even take for granted that you can all get together. Now we can't even get together. And I'm like, but let alone, you know, just time <laughs> and everything. And it's like I, I bit off more than I could chew working on a bunch of projects. I'm still working on finishing. And I just wasn't able to do it, especially to their satisfaction, because it's their name on it, not mine, uh, alone. And so they became the producers because they had so many ideas on the production. And then uh, Fallon, like I said, who mixed it. So, yeah, but, but, but the fact that Fernando was on there was because of the legacy of where it came from, which was basically, you know, like I said, the DKB, my solo band, and Billy Sherwood. And, 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 and a lot of it also, by the way, was recorded after cruise to the edge when we were all together so i would just say oh, wow. hey, listen you know this is how we were able to make that record was uh circumstances like that too we got to thank cruise to the edge because you know uh, we all live in different parts of the world 
and we were just all together and I said, hey, guys, why don't you uh, stay a few extra days or a week after Cruise to the Edge in Miami and let's record this McBroom Sisters, you know, album. So, you know, it was a good idea. It was smart in that sense because uh, otherwise it'd be very expensive to fly all that, all those people together to do that. It, that, that wouldn't be real, realistic. Um, and working remotely is possible, but, you know, there is, there's a lot of cool stuff on the record that's played live together. Sweet. You know, it, it's got yeah. energy. Yeah, it, 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 it's got some dirty moments. It's, it's got some rough and tumble. I wanted to ask you how uh, Have a Cigar ended up. I think it's a whole step higher instead of E. It's like an F sharp minor kind of vibe. Maybe that's, you know, something that uh, uh, Durga knew she needed a while ago. Or maybe that's something you threw in there to, to, to give it more punch. I don't know if you even remember going back that far. I don't. I remember the session and Lorelizing that one actually, not Durga, but um, yeah. And um, I don't. I, I don't even. I didn't even remember that we that we that we transposed it. Actually, I never. I don't have a perfect pitch, so when I listen to something, I can't necessarily tell off the bat. Um, but um, the uh, so yeah, that's new to me. But um, but yeah, we did transpose sometimes, uh, like live. We transpose uh, great gig down a half step i think uh just to make it a little easier to sing or comfortable um and yeah she might have wanted that uh pitched up i guess um but that was one that we cut live off the floor everything you hear there is played as it is and and actually in general there's a lot of like live first take stuff because you can see um fernando posted his guitar solo for pulls apart and he videoed him doing the session and it's like you can tell that live video of what he's playing is exactly the solo on the actual record. No comping, nothing, no, no alternate takes, just uh, that take. Um, <clears throat> so there's a certain magic, that. you know, and, and have a cigar is like really extended, but the reason it's extended is because we were jamming <laughs> right. live in the studio, you know? Yeah, that's that's great. The tempo, everything, the feel. Uh, I, I I dig the key it's in. It's, it, it's really sweet. And, and, and wow, so I I didn't. I, I guess I thought that was uh, Durga. But it's funny. You, you, they each have their own voices, but but they have so much flexibility, such a range. And then when they come together and they intentionally sing together, I think they they adjust and they kind of become one voice. That's really really moving. Yeah, yeah, they've got a lot of diversity, actually. They have distinctly different voices when they sing lead. Um, you know, Lorelai's um, sort of, I don't know, smoother. She sings Poles Apart as well. Um, and right, Durga's right. more, like, growly. Sure. Soulful. They're both soulful, but, um, but they have different textures to their voice. Um, and that's great for, like you said, uh, it's, it's, it's actually great for both... Um, you know, lead and backing vocals with backing vocals. Yeah, I guess they homogenize a little bit when they're doing the oohs and ahs and stuff, but there's probably that subtle difference still, and it kind of fattens it up, you know, as opposed to how it would sound with just one singer overdubbing themselves. You know, it's it's that, like, different uh, blend of timbres that makes it so big. Yeah. Even with Pink Floyd, you know, the singers that they always had, they always had distinctly different sounds uh, and you know, like when Durga sang on Pulse, you know, with the two other singers, you know, they just sounded great. Mm -hmm. I have to say, it's a pleasure getting to know uh, Durga on our show. And uh, while you veer people towards the uh, quarantine cooking <coughs> ideas, uh, 
Durga wants to talk about uh, current events and, 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 and yeah. hit those subjects square in the eye. Even though she's my, she's my co-moderator on the, the quarantine cooking ideas. <laughs> that's, oh, true, she? that's true. That's <laughs> true. She does that's some awesome. badass shakes I've seen. Yeah. She's a great cook. And she shares some fun stuff, too. And she's got a lot of knowledge. You know, Durga is like another person who's sort of like an encyclopedia of everything. I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, sometimes, you know, I'll get into it with obviously with uh, the delicate subjects of, you know, Black Lives Matter and stuff. And and, you know, I, I look to both of them sometimes for just to understand their perspective better, you know, to understand, like, what's appropriate for, for a white male to say on these subjects because yeah. I don't want to be, you know, offensive or, uh, you know, pretentious or weird or just, you know, white privilege or any, any, I don't want to, you know, step on toes or be, you know, awkward at the same time. I like to be supportive. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, uh, obviously against brutality, uh, police brutality and, and, uh, uh, abuse of power. And I, I don't like racism. Uh, and I would like to see, a better world for everybody without all of that. It's like I was saying earlier, you know, like that's what I'm for. I'm, I don't take sides. I'm like, just, you know what? Let's all enjoy it. Life is not that long for each of us and just live and let live and help each other and, and all that stuff. So, I mean, and actually, you know, the title of the album, which they came up with black Floyd, I thought, wow, that's bold. That's really bold. Cause awesome. it's also female Floyd. That was another, there were mm. some other names that were being thrown around, but, they're just really strong uh, about all those things. And, you know, I got to be honest, some of it I agree with, some of it I don't agree with. Uh, but they're my friends. And I just kind of like sometimes leave the politics out of it or the, you know, some of the things I don't really just get into because I feel like it's just the energy of it is negative or that it's just kind of too, too much, you know. Um, and then, but again, overall, Durga especially, she's just an encyclopedia. She's she's a um, like a sponge for knowledge and things, and so mm -hmm. she carries not 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 to mention she has amazing stories of her time with Pink Floyd and doing that kind of stuff. And Lorelai has great stories, uh, you know, with Pink Floyd and also uh, Rod Stewart and, and Rolling Stones. But so they have that the experience. But even their family or they're growing up, and they got a great story. They could write a book. That's how good their stories are. Mm -hmm. But the oh, uh, yeah, they grew up in an ashram part of the time. Oh yeah, just you know, it's real different. The whole, all the McGroom sisters, not just the two of them, but there's more. The whole family, very fascinating. But, um, but Durga specifically, she's just like, you know, like so knowledgeable. I, I'll be like, I'm talking about, I have this pain in my arm, and she's like, oh, you need turmeric with black pepper. Well, like, <laughs> yeah, you're like a guru, you know. Like, well, you know, like, ask Durga. You know, like, <laughs> ask just, Durga. You know, <laughs> Uh, wow. And so she got just great cooking ideas. She's like, listen, you want Branzino? I'll show you Branzino because she lives in Italy, even though she's in L.A. right now. She's she she moved to Italy and she's you know talking about like, I'll get two large Branzino from the local fish market and, you know, really do it up. And I'm like, man, you know, this is serious. <laughs> Outstanding. Right, well, what, what? Dave, did they uh, did they get a Wawa down in Miami for you guys? Yeah, man. But <laughs> All right. Did, you know, it was my birthday recently, and I wanted a chocolate junior, a tasty cake chocolate junior. Yeah. They, they didn't have it. I got to crimp it. But, you know, I got to be honest with you. They're not as good as they used to be. I was born in Philadelphia. I think we talked about this before. Yeah. yeah. And they're not as good. But anyway, at least there's a Wawa, and at least they do have some tasty cakes. So 
Nice. Yeah, not that, like I said, I mean, you're not going to be the Incredible Hulk with Tasty Cakes. No, <laughs> no, you're not. So, <laughs> you know, there's a, a little bit of a struggle between, you know, do I eat this comfort food because, man, this is making the, this whole thing more bearable? Yeah, there's those moments. And then there's these other moments where I'm like, you know what? Let me just um, use this time to uh, get into shape or whatever, be cre- creative and productive. So it's a combo. But, yeah, Wawa at least, yeah. Nice. And by the way, I did make a Philly cheesesteak recently of my own, and it was spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'd expect nothing less. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, Dave, as usual, I, I feel like, you know, we've talked for a long time and there's still more to talk about. So I guess we're just going to have to have you back in a couple months and uh, catch up sure. with some more stuff. Get ready, Dave. On that episode, we're going to ask you to force rank your uh, Pink Floyd album covers. <laughs> oh, that's just great album covers. <laughs> Dark awesome. Side of the Moon is still one of the best, isn't it? It's so. Did iconic. you ever meet Storm? No, but I love him. He was, yeah, he's great. You know, and he just seems like a cool guy too. Absolutely, we had we had fun uh, force ranking those as well. So, so yeah, next time we we have you back, Dave, we will have to. You know, have you force rank those and, you know, depending on what the timing is, maybe we'll be talking about this uh, this Pink Floyd tribute album that you will, will have finished by then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, we don't have to only talk about Pink Floyd. We're working on a Genesis tribute as well. Oh, I'd love to um, talk about that. That would be phenomenal. You know, plus, there's a new and continuum album in the works. Even nice. better. Yes. And yes. a new solo record in the works. Plus, there's oh. Squids Out to Sea. The Squids Out to Sea album is fun because it's uh, all Fernando's music. And me just singing. I don't even play barely any keys on it. I do play some, but he plays like more keys on it than I do. He plays all the instruments, wow. and they're they're his songs musically, and my job is to write the lyrics and sing. Cool. That's fun. It actually, it's I have most of it written. I just have to have time to do it. Really cool album. I think you guys will like it. So, Dave, thank you so much for spending some time with us here tonight. It is It was spectacular, as it always is. It's really a pleasure to, to speak with you and get your, your insights on all sorts of, of topics. So we, we appreciate that. And as always, we invite our listeners to share their thoughts, comments, feedback, or questions with us. You can reach uh, the Progressive Palaver on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at ProgPala, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com Dave where can they find you uh, Dave Kersner.com or uh, K-E-R-Z-N-E-R or, or sonicelements.bandcamp.com as far as the albums go and you know I'm everywhere else under the name Dave Kersner on Facebook and uh, actually technically it's facebook.com slash David Kersner because someone else has Dave Kersner oh, but okay. you, just, you just search for me and I'll like, you'll, there's also Dave Time to uh, time to issue a cease and desist on that guy. Well, you know, strangely enough, I actually convinced the guy who had the band camp for Dave Kersner. I haven't used it yet, but uh, to give it to me, it's another musician named Dave Kersner who's a faculty at like a university. And I said, I'm I'm a pro musician operating as Dave Kersner. Is there any way we can? And he said, Oh yeah, no, I'll give it to you. So I have it. I have it. Oh, used oh it. cool. But uh, I use Sonic Elements Bandcamp uh, as a as a yeah. banner for it. Right. But yeah, um, I don't know who. The, I think it might even be that same guy actually who has the other Dave Kersner, but I can't be like, and can you give up that as well? And, <laughs> All uh, your social media is given to me. Uh, <laughs> it's always fun talking to you guys, I gotta say. Great. Well, well, thank you very right. much. And 
So Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, at the stroke of the uh, clock in my house, thanks for listening. should go right to joe's secret questions before we, we talk about anything. oh do we do we really want to go that far off the uh i don't know i don't know the reservation? I'm, I'm so intrigued all right so a while ago dave we we did you know we went sort of off the uh the beaten path a little bit when the pandemic started and we were we were ranking we were force ranking star wars movies and oh. so i'm curious i was curious then and i've been curious to this very day uh-huh. dave kersner are you willing to share with us the force rank of all 11 canonical star wars live action movies sure <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, like my favorite down to the least favorite? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. So should I start with favorite or work my way up? Uh, start, <laughs> start at the bottom and work your way up. It's more fun that way. All right. Episode one. Yeah, I don't really like it. I rewatched <laughs> it again. I like Darth Maul. I think we all kind of like Darth Maul. He's pretty cool. They, should, they shouldn't have sliced him in half, though. They had to make a real stretch to bring him back. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. uh, but you know, it's aliens. You can do it, you know. But, yeah, he was cool. You know, and Obi-Wan's cool and everything. But it just was too early, you know? Like, it, too young. We don't need to see Anakin as a little kid. Yeah. Uh, you know, So and I just thought it was a lot of filler. Um, and the midichlorians. But, you know, <laughs> I hated that. Everyone hated that. That's just like, dude, you just, took something that was mystical and amazing and made it sound like uh, some part of your studio equipment, you know, like <laughs> full, full gear, uh, you know, yeah, or a global like pandemic, that. you know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, then next up from there, I guess would be attack of clones and it's better, you know, um, but, Oh, all the prequels had some really awkward dialogue, like the whole sort of sand gets everywhere and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, you know, this is like to hire somebody, please, to like edit your dialogue or write it. Um, like he did, you know, originally with Lawrence Kasdan. He was mm-hmm. great. So, uh, and then up from there, I have to say, Revenge of the Sith, uh, even though Ooh. it's good. But here's the deal. Okay, guys, check this out, man. See, I'm a writer. And I, I actually yeah, I write science fiction. I write it in progressive rock albums. But, you know, my dream is also to write screenplays. And that could have been absolutely epic. But they missed the most important thing, which is a believable reason for Anakin to turn to the dark side. And the irony is, I thought about it, they had it right in front of them. Um, and they just didn't use it. Which is basically like, you know, what as we know, what went down is... Uh, he was just using it like, hey, listen, you got to use the dark side if you want to save Padme. So, you know, and so he was like, all right. And he, you know, chops off. He makes that switch because literally right before that scene, he was just 
on the side of the Jedi still telling uh, Mace about it and trying to yeah. be a, a good Jedi. And then as soon as he chops off Mace's hands because he just wants to save Padme, he not only just goes to the dark side, but serious dark side. Like, yep, let's kill all the Jedi, all the younglings, everybody. <laughs> it's like, wow, really? Like, man, that was easy. So, so here's the thing. That's not believable. And that's what ruins it for me mostly. Mm. Um, here's what would have fixed that. They had it. Um, he is vengeful, uh, especially of the woman that he loves. So as when he flipped out, uh, when Shmi, his mom, was killed by the Sand People, he went berserk and killed all the Sand People, including the, the children and, and the women. Well, all they needed to do was have Palpatine make Anakin think that they were going to set that the uh, the Jedi were behind the assassinations attempts and were trying to kill Padme because she's a senator, and that you know to trick him into thinking that Obi Wan specifically was trying to kill her. And he would have killed then. He would have killed every Jedi and every youngling and everything uh, because he was going to, you know, take vengeance uh, on Padme. But they never used that. And so, you know, that would have been like, yeah, he, he lost. He snapped. But, uh, you know, he's not going to snap over that thing. So they, they screwed up. If they did that, I think it would have been a lot better because that was the whole point of it. The whole point of the prequels is to build up to how the heck did he become Darth Vader? And I think it just—it also just happened too fast. It was like, oh, he's Darth Vader. You're now Darth Vader. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it was like, you know? So that's my only thing. Otherwise, it was pretty, pretty... It was the best of the prequels, but my least favorite. So now, are we talking about Solo and Rogue One, too, yes. here? They, yeah. they are also in on the list. All right. So next up would be Solo. Um, oh. Yeah. I, I, well, let me think about this. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so next up will be Solo, I think. Um, it could be higher. It's, I, I like all the rest of them, so much more than the prequels. But I, but I have my thing. So so Solo, uh, I think it's underrated. I think the fans gave it a raw deal. It should have been more successful. I'm kind of bummed because I would have liked the sequel to it. I thought they set it up nicely. They had Darth Maul in there. Yeah. Sorry for the spoiler. But if you haven't watched it by now, you're not a real Star Wars fan. You know, so I had no idea that Darth Maul was still alive. And I and Ken and I watched it. We were it was like Memorial Day weekend. We watched it in a theater together. And I'm pretty sure as I was walking out of the theater, I was I was like pretty much flipping out at Ken about how it's impossible. The whole <laughs> continuity is off and everything. And literally spent like an hour when I got home surfing YouTube looking for <laughs> answers. And then when I got them, I was like, oh my god. Well, you know, I broke down. I, I actually like not a big cartoon guy. But uh, being a Star Wars fan, I was desperate, and I watched The Clone Wars and uh, Rebels as well. Mm. And some of it's good, actually. Once you get into, once you, you know, some of it's like a cartoon cheesy kids thing, and then some of it is like, oh, this is actually kind of a cool backstory or additional characters or whatever. Like Ashoka or Soka, whatever her name is, she's a cool character. And but they brought Darth Maul back in that, and so I knew. And then you know, it was cool how they did that, the crime syndicate and all that. So it kind of related to that. I liked it, just like I like The Mandalorian. Actually, it's not a, a film, but it's up there. Yeah. Um, but the next up would be Rogue One. Um, I really like it. I think that's a cool prequel to the original Star Wars. Um, next up from there would be uh, Return of the Jedi, which I like a lot, but a little bit cheesy with the Ewoks and stuff, you know. But I don't mind them now. Actually, I welcome Ewoks <laughs> compared to some other. But, uh, you know, it, it's good. 
Um, then now this is this is the tough one. I I I don't know. Like uh, I, which one is yeah? I guess technically. I don't know. I guess Empire's next, and then Star Wars is the original is number one. Only because you know, I mean, it's a, it could be flipped, but because um, Empire is really technically a more exciting film with more depth and things like that, and twists and stuff. So I could easily it's like tied really because it's got that. But the original Star Wars, you know, which I watched a million times when I was a kid, is so unique, so like foreign and strange. The initial characters of you know C-3PO and R2-D2 and just the introduction of all the characters and Obi-Wan and um, you know Han Solo and Chewie and, and even the way Leia was in that movie. She was sort of more intense in that movie than any of the other movies. Like, get this walking carpet out of my way. <laughs> you know, she just had kind of like a cool, you know what I mean? She, yeah, she, she, was, was, I don't she know. had some hoodspot, no doubt about it. Yeah, she had hoodspot. And so, um, I don't know. And it was, I remember at the time, it was just so like unique. It just stands out as a classic. It's a tough call between the two. You know, there's also, by the way, not talked about a lot. Well, maybe a little, but there's a lot of borrowing from Dune. And also a movie called Midway, which they redid. But there was a movie back then called Midway about the uh, you know World War II, mm-hmm. and that whole end end scene is straight out of Midway, where they were just talking to each other on the um, you know yeah, up in the, the cockpits. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, that's my Star Wars uh, top eleven. All right, well we're, we're missing <laughs> we're missing three though. We didn't get the sequels in there. Where do they fit? Oh shit! Okay, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, do those even count? No. Um, <laughs> you can just tack them onto the bottom. It's okay. Uh, actually, I would sort of stick them in between. That would come before Solo. Yeah. I mean, it's somewhere in there because uh, less than obviously the original trilogy. So, and on that, I like, uh, yeah, I screwed it up. I apologize. I forgot about them. But I do, I do like them. I like them. Um, but, I have my criticisms of, of the sequel, the, the sequels. Uh, let's see. It, w- it would be my favorite from least favorite to favorite would be the last Jedi force awakens and the rise of Skywalker. Um, I'll tell you what I like about them. They're, they're sort of, they're actually maybe after the prequels before solo, possibly um, just because I have less criticism of solo than I do of the sequels. But I'll tell you one thing. I love the fact that they use practical effects more. They're like a great combination. The mm-hmm. production is fantastic. It looks right. It's supposed to... I love how they went retro and grungy. I know George doesn't like it, but it's part of the charm of it. It's like... And plus, it's consistent. It's like, well, that's how it looks, man. And you're changing the universe. If you make it look... You know, with the prequels, it was like more advanced than the... Than right. The, right after. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. I don't like that. So I like the fact that they kept the vibe, the look of the technology and everything. That was fun. And um, I like the new characters. They're fun. I like Poe and I like Ray and Finn's all right, you know, and and I don't like Rose. No one liked Rose, but I feel bad for her as well. She's not that bad. Mm. You know, it's just filler. You know, uh, Ryan, 
uh, whatever his name is. He Johnson. took, yeah. he took a lot of uh, risks and they had a little ego there and an agenda with Kathleen Kennedy. And I understand that. I don't like it. Uh, you know, I don't like that. You know, I don't mind. In fact, I, I really don't mind at all. I like the diversity of ethnic characters and female leads and all that. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I think it's great, actually. I really liked Rogue One for that. I thought there was all sorts of interesting people of different backgrounds. It doesn't have to be just a bunch of white people. You know, I, I think oh, yeah. it's a good thing. I like that. However, I don't like when it's like anything is done to try to just push an agenda, like a feminist agenda or something like that. It's like, I love women. I love female characters. But like, is this being, you know, manipulated or this and that? Or like, let's say what happened with Luke. I don't like that either. I don't like how they minimized him and made him look like just a total, like everything he did was like, oh yeah, I just became a grumpy, you know, like brat or whatever. So I don't know. Like, I just think that they just went a little too far and should have really balanced creativity with a bit of fan service. And, um, you know, they did do that with Mandalorian and everyone loves it. Yeah. So it's like, well, that's the way to approach it, man. You know, you're taking on a big thing, taking over George Lucas's vision. And even though he kind of, you know, messed up with the prequels, they, they got the visuals and the production right for the sequels. But the uh, but the story, the writing and all that stuff, you know, and I, I don't know if it was even J.J.'s fault. I think he's really good. I think he just you know, maybe the politics, Kathleen or this now, whatever. I don't know. But I, I'm not a big complainer. I really enjoyed it, and I welcome more. Um, you know, I, I loved uh, Palpatine, and I like the fact that they explained Snoke, even though it's a little weird, but they explained it at least. You know, and, um, yeah, there's some plot holes. There's some problems with it, but overall, you know, there is for the entire Star Wars, and nothing really compares to the original trilogy. So, you know. All right. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> So, wow. so uh, one other quick Star Wars related question, and I'll get my secret questions out of the way. Are, are you a reader by any chance, Dave? Do you read any I of mean, the Star Wars books? No, I don't. I don't read those. Okay, I, and I, I don't read much. I used to, you know, but I read things like Capture in the Rye or you know, sure, like classic books, and not really like novelizations. That said, I'm sure there's a lot of fun riches. And the funny thing is, is like, I intend to, like I have all the Dune books and I read most of them actually. Oh, they're uh, so good. Oh my God. You know, they're really good. <laughs> but, um, you know, and then, but then I bought like the Dune prequel books by oh, Brian. Herbert. No, 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 oh. don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's just kind of, uh, like I intended to read it. And then I was like, nah, I don't think I'm going to, but you know, I like, and actually, you know what I'm going to read though, just because I'm bummed that they, it wasn't successful and it, and it deserved a sequel, but it just, I don't know what happened. Disney screwed it up. Is that John Carter from uh, Mars mm. there? It should deserve. It was a really good movie and it deserved a sequel. And they were planning on making a trilogy and it just wasn't successful enough at the box office. And I hate that, but I was kind of like, you know what? The books exist. So I'm like, you want a sequel? Read the book, man. There you go. <laughs> Same nice. thing with, with the Dune books you know it's like you want to know what happens next it's like well you know you got the books i could i could talk dune for an hour um, well there's that new dune movie being made that's right yep i'm curious to see if they finally nail it it's a hard movie to translate a hard uh, book to translate into a movie really is if they can get through the first one you talk about trilogies 
um, books two and three will probably translate wonderfully to the screen. Well, did you see that miniseries? They they did Children of Dune and combined it. Yeah, that was uh, that was a long time ago, like ten years, wasn't it? Yeah, time flies. I liked it. I thought it was cool. At least you got to see it, you know. But the the reason I asked about books is I'm I'm currently reading the third of the of the new canon Thrawn trilogy, and it's funny how they're trying to. It seems like they're setting Thrawn up to be a more sympathetic character since everyone thinks he's so cool. So I'm just curious where that's going. So so Paul, th- those are my off topic secret questions. All right. Well, I'm glad we got we got those. That that was um I think that was on everyone's mind. It really was. Um, it should have been. Oh, and thank I, you guys for letting me say it. I, I really have yeah. no forum to say it that. I, don't, I haven't created a Star Wars group yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, talk talk about controversy. I think you'll invite plenty with a Star Wars group. Oh yeah. And yeah. um, you know, Dave, in honor of your uh, your joining us tonight, I did uh, use my Darth Vader ice cube uh, in my uh, on my bourbon tonight. Ah! Oh, that's awesome, man. It's looking a little bit like, you know, from episode seven, uh, his mask <laughs> <from> seven. <right? laughs> oh, yeah, right. that's cool. Man. 